I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, MXD CEO Chandra Brown sits down with Patrick O'Rahili, founder and CEO of Factory Fix. They discuss the opportunities and challenges of reshoring manufacturing and supply chain operations in the U.S. and Chicagoland in particular. From attracting and retaining talent to the pipeline for professional growth, these two explore ways we can all be thinking about solving some of the supply chain backlogs by bringing opportunities stateside. Welcome, everyone. You guys are in for a treat. Because uh, Patrick and I are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is reshoring and made in America. So, just to start, talk about uh, your journey and really what led to the found the the founding of Factory Fix. Like, I think it's so great what you're doing, and I think um, it really would be wise for the audience to know, like, kind of how you went on this journey. So I'm, I'm Patrick, I'm O'Reilly, the founder uh, and CEO of Factory Fix. And um, just to give you some idea of how we got here, uh, I had a company before this that I started right out of college, actually, called Compass Automation. And uh, the idea with Compass was we were going to sell industrial robots, um, essentially go into a manufacturing company see a process that they were doing manually and design a machine and system that would automate it. And uh, to be honest, we had no idea what we were doing when we we started, of course, and took us almost a year to sell our very first system. Um, We were talking about shutting down the company, you know, what are we doing here, that sort of thing. Um, But finally got, one company to say yes, it was actually Fairfield Manufacturing in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. I'll never forget our first customer. Um, And they took a shot on us and we built a system for them and um, they still use it, I think to this day. Uh, So that just kind of propelled us to get better and better at building these custom automation systems. Um, But through my experience at Compass, I got to learn about the challenges of hiring, right? Because not only um, were all of our customers manufacturers, but we ourselves were like a specialized type of manufacturer. It's like the ultimate um, low volume, high mix manufacturer because we were doing completely custom one-off systems. Uh, And so really factory fix came into the picture because, well, the machines we were building weren't all that profitable, frankly. And we had to figure out like, how do we generate another revenue stream here? And um, what what was happening though, was after we installed one of these systems, our customers would always call us and need us to send either like a PLC programmer or, you know, service technician out to their facility to, like either fix the system or do a little upgrade and that sort of thing. And those types of projects were like insanely profitable, right? Cause, cause <laughs> the company couldn't, um, couldn't find these people to staff uh, themselves. And so we were just trying to figure out how do we, 
how do we get more of these these projects? And so I started to build a network of people that did this type of work with automation systems. Um, and the initial idea was kind of this, um, you know, Uber for automation guy, almost picture that, like hit, hit a button if you have a project and uh, someone shows up and, you know, fixes your system type deal. Um, so that was the initial iteration, but um, fast forward ahead to early 2017, we actually get the opportunity to sell Compass to Tesla. Um, they bought us along with actually a couple other automation companies and decided to turn it into their internal automation team, essentially. Um, so the facility's still open out in Elgin, Illinois here. Um, they just build Tesla stuff now instead of uh, other customers. And um, yeah, that was an amazing exit for us. Like it wasn't huge monetarily, but frankly, there's no like good way to exit a business like that uh, unless you're just going to do it for the rest of your life. Um, so I was left with factory fix and I thought it could be more of a cool, you know, venture capital backed platform type business. Um, it was apparent early on that the whole, uh, Uber for automation, you know, model wasn't going to work. So, you know, a couple pivots later, uh, here we are and we've built this, you know, talent network and recruiting platform for all of manufacturing. So, so that's Patrick, the long, long journey. How did you like do it during the pandemic? So we talked about like, you know, right prior to 2020. And then like, I mean, that's awesome. You sold to Tesla. I mean, that's a huge compliment. I love that whether it was profitable and whether that was the best path and that we're going to talk a lot about labor here coming up and, and what's happening. But talk to me about that prior to 2020 and then coming up until today, you know, pre-pandemic, how did it evolve and how did you survive through the pandemic? Because we're going to talk next about really how reshoring and the pandemic are tied together. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, before the pandemic, you know, the big topic in manufacturing was like the skills gap, right? And so there was more of an emphasis on uh, matching and, and skills matching and how can I find a machinist that knows, you know, Haas uh, lathes and knows Mastercam or something like that. Um, so our value prop to manufacturing companies was much more about this uh, data collection on each worker's experience that like down to the machine level. And we still do that today, but it's almost less important because now after the pandemic, I feel like we've gone from, you know, just the skills gap and worrying about people retiring to now it's just a full-blown labor shortage, right? Now I can't even fill like the entry-level jobs. Um, so, you know, the skills matching and, and stuff is is still like valuable. And I think it really speaks to manufacturers, but um, now we've emphasized more uh, just getting more applicants to your jobs and more um, and making sure those applicants are responsive and actually interested in your specific job. Um, so the pandemic's just, you know, been a huge paradigm shift when it, when it goes there. And 
obviously there's all kinds of labor market craziness now. Well, it's so funny because you and I are like the perfect partner mix because, you know, as you know, I used to be a CEO of like United Streetcar and I was always, I could never find welders and fitters and machinists, you know, exactly what you're doing. Like, I wish I had you, you know, like, you know, 10 years ago plus when we were doing that. And now at MXD, we're focused on the jobs, the other pipeline, because right now it's a labor shortage across the board with the digital skilled workers and the cybersecurity workers of the future, which is also a huge lack of right now. And that really ties, people always talk about, like, how does this relate to reshoring? And, you know, again, we can't reshore if we don't have the labor resource, right? There's lots of things you need to be bringing companies back to the United States. And obviously, uh, labor is one of the most critical components of that. But, you know, I remember back in the beginning of the pandemic, like at MXD, we wait, we never closed, um, partly because we are funded by the Department of Defense and we were working on a variety of things for them. But we also started making face shields, right? Like all these manufacturers at the beginning, people keep forgetting like how much teamwork there was. It was so great. And I think that's when a lot of reshoring too, people realize like I need a local supply chain, right? I need local toilet paper makers. Like I laugh, I tell everyone all the time, I was never so popular with our supply chain work as we were like, you know, as the pandemic kept going. So like, if we think about that, um, you know, talk about like reshoring, you know, and when that kind of came and, and what, how you're helping with that. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think it initially started with all the PPE shortages, right? Mm -hmm. People are freaking out and realizing, my God, China makes all this stuff. Like, what are we doing? You know, why do we have such, you know, critical infrastructure or critical products being made in China? And, you know, that's kind of what got the buzz started. And then, and then it was the whole semiconductor shortage and now we can't get cars. And, uh, and then it was like the, the, the port backups, right? Like, these exactly. ships like living in the ocean. Um, so obviously there's great momentum around the reshoring efforts. And, you know, I don't think companies are just shutting down facilities and, and bringing them over here immediately. Um, but for your next one, you know, I don't, I don't think you are going to build it in China or, you know, you, you better have a really good reason um, if you are. So I think that's really good for U.S. manufacturing. Now, I think the labor issues are really what's going to deter that, though, um, especially with, you know, wages increasing and the competition's at an all-time high. So, you know, that's going to combat it a little bit. But I, I still think ultimately with, uh, you know, the innovations in automation, um, you know, it's going to be a net positive. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I also think like Mexico is going to benefit big time too. Um, and so, yeah, we have to figure out like the labor issues if we're going to see this reassuring effort um, reach its potential. 
Well, now we, we were talking kind of global there. And yeah, I'm all for like bringing back as much as we can, you know, across the United States. I think there's great manufacturing hubs in this country um, and those are going to really continue to grow, which leads me to talk about, you know, the Chicagoland area, right? And some of the geographic advantages of, of, of being here. And, you know, at MXD, we have a lot of partners. We're a national institute, right? So we have partners from all over the United States. And, you know, they have space on our floor and it could be a Siemens and Microsoft, AT&T, like all these big companies. And yet, you know, they want to be doing something here in Chicago, right? And, and we love our, our place out on Goose Island. Um, so one of the things that I always like to mention, because I think people don't know this, Patrick, is that the Chicago metro area, I love the statistic, has the second highest count of manufacturing businesses in the U.S., like roughly 12,000 businesses. Like, I think that's crazy. You know, most people don't talk about it. They don't know about it. And obviously, we have incredible intermodal, you know, from rail to O'Hare, you know, good and bad of O'Hare, right? <laughs> um, but let's talk about the strengths of Chicago, you know, like as the logistics hub, it's such an incredible source of STEM talent and, you know, a good cost of living. So what are unique opportunities if someone's going to invest or like bring, you know, a company here or build a manufacturing company here? What, what would you tell them? Yeah, um, well, I think Chicagoland and the demographics um, are almost uniquely tailored to supporting manufacturing businesses. Uh, you mentioned the the STEM talent, and and that's totally true. I mean, you have great universities, uh, U of I, you have Northwestern, um, and, and that's amazing. But you also have huge immigrant populations, um, lots of Hispanics and and Polish and and people that are um, looking to or looking not only for a job but actually for a career to in a sense like change their family tree or at least have the potential for it and when you think about manufacturing especially the lower skilled roles um that the large immigrant population is a huge advantage there uh because they're the ones that would be interested in the lower skilled roles in manufacturing because manufacturing has the potential to make that into a career. Like you have the opportunity to progress. You can start as a machine operator and learn how to do production setups and become a CNC machinist and then maybe learn, you know, CAD CAM and become a CNC programmer. So I think there's more opportunity um, to uh, yeah, to, to progress in your career in manufacturing than, you know, some of the other things that manufacturers are competing against, like the gig economy or Amazon warehouses or, or that sort of thing. So I think it's really the, the unique demographics of Chicagoland. Obviously, Chicago's king of the Midwest, so it kind of sucks up all the the Midwest talent. Um, but yeah, it's got a lot of things going for us. Uh, so, you know, hopefully we don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, like talk about, I love that. Like talk about like, now we're going to dive into like this labor market, right? You, you're an expert in this, you know, you're trying to fill these jobs, you know, in, around, and not just Chicago, obviously we're talking about the Midwest, you know, we have a great hub, you know, whether it's, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, like there, there's a lot of incredible things happening in this region, but you know, how do you view the current labor market, right? And where do you see opportunities and where are the challenges, you know, and how are we going to meet those? So that's your point. How are we not going to screw it up, Patrick? Help us out here. I mean, it's it's very challenging. It's, it's as bad as I've ever seen it. Like, there's no, there's no doubt about it. And um, the challenges um, are that there's more competition than ever, right? I mentioned, I mentioned Amazon, like, they are they are the monster, right? And and they will pay more than you as a smaller mid-sized manufacturer can pay uh, for the entry level roles. So what you really have to do is like double down on your competitive advantage, which is right, like how do you how do I make this a career or how can I how can I show that this can be a career and, and not just an entry level job? And Amazon tries to do this too. Um, even Chipotle does this too, right? Where they they say you can be become a store manager, uh, you know, within X amount of years. But I think it's more true in manufacturing. And so um, I think as an employer, if I have a, a super clear, transparent career career development path uh, for folks, that's where I see the smartest employers having the most success, right? They'll, they'll say, yeah, we're hiring for this machine operator job. It pays, you know, 20 bucks an hour. But, you know, in two years, if you do this, this, and this, if you learn these skills, like you get promoted to being a, a CNC machinist and then you make, you know, $27 an hour or something like that. And, the smartest companies that we're working with have have adopted, you know, that that almost like upper out mentality that you see from the McKinsey's and like BCG's of the world, where the entry level it's it's more like a funnel, right? You you know, um, you know, not everyone's going to make it to that next that next level. Not everyone's going to get promoted. But the ones that do, you can invest in and pay more to. And as long as it's transparent, the timeline's transparent and the skills needed are, are transparent, you're going to have more success and, um, yeah, be able to fill those those entry-level jobs. Um, so that's a bit of a tangent there, but, yeah. You know, one of the things you and I we were talking about, too, is – um, not just the labor, but let's talk about, you know, technologically um, advances. We've got some great tech companies here. Again, that's one of the things we love to do at MXD. We've put out over 120 million in projects, you know, to help companies like get their supply chain more resilient to do that type of thing. And a, a great question, like talking about these technological advancements, how are road, bridge, CTA, like all these new transit developments, and obviously there's a lot of public funds coming down the pipe, you know, we're, we're going to need even more workers for, right, to kind of exacerbate this issue. But how are these things in Chicago helping or hurting opportunities for new manufacturing and supply chain projects? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, I'm not as educated on 
like the latest infrastructure projects, but but I know as far as like public transportation goes, that's one of the biggest reasons we see jobs go unfilled, especially companies that are in or, or near the city. Um, you you have a workforce there that is less likely to have their own transportation. So um, I think any investments we can make there uh, will be huge, especially for those lower skilled roles. Yeah, and I think I would add to this because we're doing a, a variety of work in this space. I think that um, I would argue it's helping. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's always issues. Obviously, we've been talking about the labor shortage across the board. But for example, one of the areas that we've been working a lot in with the Midwest, specifically leading out of Chicago, is, and, and you know, this with Tesla, right, is in the EV space. So, you know, there's, uh, we've done incredible things in the state of Illinois. Um, Governor Pritzker passed legislation, you know, kind of really helping move that forward. We're working together with Michigan and others. So I think there's actually a lot of, you know, supply chain and things like the EV space and other transit, like there's going to be some, I'm pretty, I used to build streetcars, uh, you know, modern streetcars in my old days. So I'm a big transit fan. And I think there is, and we reshored building actually streetcars, you know, back to the United States. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunities in the transit space to do things better. And especially as we're getting more sustainable, more eco-friendly, I personally think that's a great opportunity opportunity space uh, for folks in the Chicagoland and, and, and surrounding areas, really, for some of these projects. Just going back to what you said about uh, South, South America, you know, if people want to onshore in North America but can't afford to, um, do you think the push will focus on South and Latin America so they can try to establish, you know, nearshore dominance, kind of what you're saying? So I just wanted to follow up on that because that was an interesting point. Yeah, um, I actually heard that like permits being filed for Mexican border towns to build manufacturing facilities mm -hmm. is at like an all time high. And I think a lot of it has to do with COVID and, and the supply chain issues we saw. Um, but then also, you know, I wish they were all building facilities in the US. But again, you have the labor issues and um, yeah, it's just not not um, economically feasible to put put them all in the US. Um, but yeah, I think I think Latin America is really going to benefit from um, from the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. But going back to talk about, you know, we were talking about the Chicagoland area, we were talking about talent. You know, one of the other things I wanted your opinion on, because um, we think about this a lot, is I think one of the advantages of Chicago in this area is the diversity. So specifically, you know, the diversity across the board. And, you know, I think Chicago is a great place where uh, DEI and inclusion and diversity um, really can work uh, to our advantage, right, to help like solve some of these problems. I used to say this all the time, the pipeline is, it, we, if we do not get more diverse workers, we will never fill all these jobs, right? So it is like an absolute necessity for people to be diversifying theirs. 
And, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of at MXD, like we, I always ask people like, look at your statistics, you know, my, like our, my board, 55% women, you know, almost 30% people of color, our staff, 40% of my staff are people of color. And we're in a, you know, innovative kind of advanced manufacturing hub. So if we can do it, other people can do it, right? So how, how would you talk about this and, you know, the more diverse workforce, more diverse referrals, like how are you dealing and using this as hopefully an advantage? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we have a choice, frankly. Um, I think, yeah, not only is it beneficial to have a diverse workforce, um, it's, it's a necessity uh, because of the labor market issues we're facing. Uh, employers really have to think outside the box. We're seeing, you know, we're partnering with uh, the National Association of Manufacturers that are doing all sorts of workforce programs. Um, there's one called uh, the Second Chance Program, which is placing um, uh, people that have been in prison for a while into manufacturing roles, teaching them skills. Um, they have a veterans program uh, that's really great. Uh, their, their women in manufacturing program has also been really successful. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we have to skate where the puck is going and, and not where, it, where it's been. And uh, in order to fill these roles, we really have to look outside of our comfort zone or outside of the, the usual places up until this point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So another question, like we've been talking a lot about talent. I want to talk to about um, technical advancements, right? Like technical opportunities like that you're seeing and, and what's creating these new opportunities for businesses. You know, you are like automation, right? That's a huge topic that everybody's always talking about for us at MXD, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, we're doing digital twins, um, pretty much, you know, artificial intelligence, all these uh, quantum computing, right? And 5G, you know, you could talk about, we have a 5G test bed that we're just starting to work on some things for the manufacturing space. There is so much changing. And, and we know that companies that were investing, you know, in kind of digital transformation and embracing industry 4.0 earlier were really the best placed, right? To survive and kind of thrive, especially like going through the pandemic when a lot of people converted to more digital than they probably ever thought, you know, they would be. It was a good just that way. But, you know, this smart manufacturing industry 4.0, they're, they're really providing these opportunities for manufacturers of all sorts and sizes, you know, to transform and, you know, move forward. So let's talk about some of these technological advancements and, you know, how do these create new opportunities? What are you seeing in the space? Yeah, I think um, one of the coolest new technologies that I'm seeing is is almost more of like a financial innovation, but there's a few companies that are enabling manufacturers to, to um, buy 
robots like like they hire employees. So it's like a, a pay by the hour model, essentially, which eliminates a huge barrier of that, you know, huge CapEx cost to, to buy that system. And if you can just buy a robot and pay it, I don't know, let's say 40 bucks an hour or something like that. Um, I, I thought that's that was super interesting and and it makes automation more accessible to small and mid-sized manufacturers. Um, and I could see, you know, in the future, if you're looking at your PL and you, you have the the line item for uh, you know, human payroll, but also have a, a line item for, for robotic uh, payroll as well, if you're paying them by the hour. Um, and you know, look, I think automation is here, um, but to people outside the industry, I think they, they think manufacturing is a lot more automated than it actually is. Um, you know, sure, like the, the dull and dirty and dangerous jobs um, are being automated in, in many cases, and they, they need to be. Um, but it's that next step of like, complex assembly automation or complex inspection automation that that humans are still doing today um but you know obviously over time that that's only going to get automation's only going to get better and better um so i mean what what does that mean for the future um you know i i think there's going to be less and less just nasty you know, unskilled, low-skilled jobs that that people don't want anyways, that manufacturers can't fill anyways, and those will all be automated, uh, and everyone will essentially be shifted up and have to be a bit more skilled, um, which is a good thing, I think, all around. Right? Uh, those are better job opportunities, um, and it needs to happen. But uh, certainly, you know, automation. Um, being becoming more affordable to everyone uh, is going to exacerbate and, and accelerate that shift. And, you know, just talking about automation, we get this question all the time. It's all about that return on investment. So I love the way that you were phrasing, like, how do you value the robot per hour, right? You know, fully loaded versus others. So we know automation increases efficiencies, but I think it's also a great point that people think that I would totally agree that the manufacturing space is more automated than it actually is. You know, it's great to see the high profile auto companies. It's awesome. You know what Ford and others are doing, right? But that is not the, the majority of the kind of mom and pop manufacturing shops around this country that, you know, supply all the parts and pieces going into that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Tesla, um, after they bought us, uh, it, it was apparent that um, the Gigafactory outside of Sparks, Nevada, they went too far with automation. They actually like over automated uh, where to the point where they were having like robots hand parts to other robots, which were big no-nos in like the automation world. And we, had, well, not not me, but our, our team actually had to go in there and like scale back a bit or at least help scale back a bit and redesign um, the assembly operations just to to de-automate a bit because <laughs> over-automating isn't great either, at least not yet.
Yeah, that's crazy. You're the first one I've heard that talked about over automating. That's awesome. <laughs> the most people don't talk about that. They're always about the other side, kind of what we're talking about now. Uh, what's the advice um, to those listening to think about supplier diversity to support their local manufacturing? And kind of to your point, what are some early steps to think about budgeting and scaling to support local manufacturing? So, I mean, automation is one way, right? But you know, what would you advise people to think about in terms of supplier diversity to support local manufacturing? Oh, man, that's a good question. And, and you know, the procurement people on on the call know a lot more than than I do. But um, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for using smaller manufacturers, um, especially ones that are local. To you, I know we at Compass um, would always use the machine shop down the road because we know if the part was bad, we could walk over and and uh, I think they're a lot more responsive to that. But yeah, I, I don't I don't know much more about um, about that subject, to be honest. Well, and I could probably help out a little bit here just because we we put a lot of money into supply chain areas. And, you know, what my advice is, um, you know, when you talk about early steps, it's like you first have to have visibility into the supply chain. You know, it's like, that's another thing people don't understand, you know, for want of a nail, right? The horse is lost from long time down the line. So, you know, we have a supply chain um, kind of resiliency. We have algorithms for like predictability for where is your supply chain going to fail? So there's some great work out there. Um, but I mean, really you have to define your critical path of materials and not just tier ones and tier twos, like people like to talk about all the way down to where is that nail coming from, right? And like, where is it being sourced? And, you know, what are even the raw materials? You know, we look at the chip issue and others, there's so much happening on this supply chain issue. Uh, and I think we have had other forums actually on this and we probably will today because there's just so much happening, um, you know, when you talk about supplier diversity and moving forward. So that's a really great question. Uh, whoever said that was excellent. Um, Okay, I know we're getting down in time. So I wanna hit at least two more really important things. Um, you know, very specifically like with factory fix and stuff and what you see, I wanna know, um, again, taking automation, bringing it into, you know, labor, your experience there. Like, what are the innovative technologies you guys are using, right? Like, what are you doing to implementing so you can match like the right talent to the right opportunity? And like, what do you think is on the tech side going to help what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, right now, what we're laser focused on is how do we get young people interested and in, into the manufacturing industry, right? So we're spending a lot of time thinking about that. And our whole goal is to, yeah, we'll find you your first job, but let's also get you ready and coached up for your second job in the industry at the same time. And so what we're looking at is uh, a couple different things. The Maybe the most exciting is to build like almost like a social community um, for young manufacturing professionals to where we can incentivize them and invest in them to get upskilled um, with manufacturing skills. Uh, and, you know, believe it or not, but this, this whole, um, you know, web three movement 
um, and the idea of a tokenized community uh, is super interesting to us um, because you know it's not like you can just pay students money to like take training courses and improve themselves and thus you know improve the manufacturing workforce. But the idea of um, of this uh, this tokenized community and and for those of you that that aren't you know familiar with it. Um, it's, you know, it, that's a whole rabbit hole we can go down, but essentially it's an, it's an instrument that we can use to drive incentives and reward students to take training courses or to, um, or to stay a certain period in a job. Um, so, you know, I, that's one space that I think is really exciting. I mean, for us, you know, there's no way we're going to build uh, an online community uh, the same way like LinkedIn did it 10 years ago. So you have to use today's or tomorrow's um, innovations in order to do that. So um, the Web3 space is super interesting to us. Uh, and, you know, to uh, to me, it's a, it's a good way to actually get young people excited about the industry. I love that. You know, that's one of the things we talk all the time. We have MXD Learn, our workforce arm, and, you know, we're bringing everyone from Girl Scouts, right, to even the much younger generations. I think that's another key. We talk about, like, exposing them, you know, to kind of the career choices. And kind of exactly to your point, it's a continuous learning, right, and upskilling. So we have a virtual training center platform, exactly kind of what you're talking about, like an, an open edX platform, right? So you can like centrally locate, people can come in and take these like classes that they need to upskill and continuously learn when you're already in the manufacturing space, which also makes it more attractive, you know, to other people. You're not only doing the same thing all the time, like there's so much opportunity and really like these new training and learning programs that are coming out are really going to just empower, I think, you know, the industry and, you know, help develop workers using these cutting edge technologies, right. And stuff like the LinkedIn kind of even platform, what they do there, it's just, you know, amazing, right. How many trainings and classes and things that you can take. So I think, um, you know, there's a lot that we can do for us to, you know, I, when I look at the jobs of the future, you know, cybersecurity is huge, you know, I'll have to touch on that. But, you know, even when we're looking at the digital manufacturing jobs of the future, one of the comments I always say is like, have you realized that at some point you may need a digital ethicist? Like, think about that job title, like it doesn't even exist right now. And so we're trying to find these, these jobs that even the titles don't exist. So the tracks on how you get there is going to be crazy as you have more data and more uh, machine learning exactly as you were talking about in the beginning of this. So there's just so much, you know, kind of great stuff. But I like to say I'm still optimistic, you know, lots, lots to do, right? Lots to go forward, but uh, lots of ways to help that. Um, I'm going to do the final uh, question. Um, and let's just make it really, I love practical, like I'm a, you know, practical manufacturing person. So what is like uh, one step for people that are listening and like if you were exploring, you know, giving your advice to someone who's exploring a move to the Midwest, 
you know, that what can you do to begin the process of reshoring and, and make it as easy as possible? Like, how would you advise folks practically to think about and strategize this type of move? Yeah, I think being being um, super intentional about the location is something that seems obvious, but is often overlooked, right? You have to know your company and the types of roles that you're going to need to fill and then move somewhere near a, a feeder source, right? Whether that be, you know, if you're looking for more STEM jobs, you need to be near a, you know, prominent university. Um, if you're if you need a lot of entry level, you know, general labor positions, you should think about moving near an Amazon warehouse or something like that. Um, but being um, overly intentional about about the location, I think, is just, you know, something that um, gets overlooked. And we deal with a lot of companies that are in just super rural areas, and and I feel for them. Um, and, and they do what they can. They look for people willing to relocate and they know every, every single person uh, in that town. But, um, you know, there's there's an inherent ceiling on that. So um, locations, everything, uh, especially when it comes to to workforce um, and in our platform, too. That's the number one thing that gets requested is I want to set my maximum commute time. Um, so location is, is everything. That is a great piece of practical advice. Location, location, location. <laughs> I love it. That's like so easy. We can all remember that. And it is true. Yeah. People have to think about that. So, I mean, I thought this was a, such a great conversation, Patrick. I really appreciate all your time and what you are doing, you know, to help really continue to supply this workforce of the future. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Sure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.